Thank you for that testimony and song. Please turn your Bibles to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. We are in part two, I guess. This is the second week that we are taking time to work through this psalm, but we are in the bigger series of Songs in the Night and really dealing with the idea of spiritual discouragement and depression as we have tried to just clarify and talk many times there are a variety of ways that discouragement and depression can show up in the life and uh, we believe that sometimes it is due to um, chemical imbalances or reactions to medicine or a variety of physical things that are happening in the body Um, in those moments Because of the heaviness of the situation that is happening physically in our bodies, there can be a temptation then to respond spiritually to it as well. So there can be a spiritual dynamic to even a physical depression. But then there are times in life where the depression, spiritual discouragement, how we want to describe it, it comes because the circumstances that we are experiencing, number one, living in a fallen world, knowing that we're all messy and broken, and, and then you have the sovereign plan of God that is playing out in our lives. And, and so sometimes that comes in the form of pain and hardship and suffering. And so the discouragement comes along those lines and even seasons of depression. And we see in the psalmist uh, moments like this. And uh, so that journey through that type of depression, I, I hope, was helpful for you. But Starting last week, we wanted to kind of focus in on what happens when it's our fault. When we experience spiritual discouragement and depression because of our own sinfulness. And so many times that is the root cause of our struggle and our pain. And we have this process of lament that is given for us in the scripture. The Psalms of Lament are here to help us navigate our feelings and those thoughts that we have during hardships, during times of pain. And we are using Psalm 51, although many people wouldn't categorize it as a psalm of lament. I'm including in this, it's uh, normally one of the penitential psalms. But I think it does fit the category of lament, and we looked at the context of this psalm last week in detail, in more detail than I had originally planned, but I wanted to make sure that everyone in our audience understands even the historical context of which some of these things are written. And so we took time to look at the story that is described in the superscription in Psalm 51. If you look there, it says, For the choir director, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him and he had gone to Bathsheba. And uh, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Bathsheba. And so we took time to really rehearse the story in 2 Samuel that is a very clear picture of how we can get so caught up in our own mess and make choices that sometimes we never thought we would make. And I want to just kind of rehearse those ideas that we see, the progression, like how did David get here 
to this point. Now, where we're going to pick up in Psalm 51 is his, the repentance side, but, but how did he get to this place? And we talked about just four uh, aspects of, of kind of where he went in his thinking and then eventually his behavior. And number one, he set aside truth. So he, he knew what was right, and, and he took the truth about God and what God had revealed about his will and set that aside to then follow his own logic and his own desires. And he ended up not only looking upon Bathsheba, but then committing adultery with Bathsheba and then as well um, the, the commit murder of her husband and the progression from there. So how does one get to this point? Well, we have to keep truth in the center of our lives. It must be what keeps us anchored. We must continue to focus over and over and over on the truth of God's word. We have to be putting God's truth into our hearts so that it is what we are consumed with and what we think and continue to believe. The second thing was that he forgot the goodness of God. And we looked at that portion where the prophet said to David, I've given you this, and I've given you this, and I've given you this, and if that wasn't enough, I would have given you more. And so many times in our lives, we want the more, Um, and, and yet we have so much right in front of us of what God has given us, and we want to expand beyond that and even sometimes in areas where God has said, absolutely not, that is not my will. So he forgot the goodness of God. He then as well took his resources and the people around him, and he used them for his benefit, to satisfy his own desires. And we see that as king, he had plenty of resources and the ability to carry out his desires. But even in our own lives, we can tend to manipulate and use people to be able to justify and then satisfy what we want in our lives. And then as Nathan gave him that example, that illustration of the man who had the sheep and it was taken away, and, and Nathan's response was so harsh and critical. It was like, the man needs to die. Who took the sheep? And Nathan then pointed out, you know what, you, you're the guy. And, and sometimes when we are so clouded in our perspective that we get real clear on other people's sin. Um, and then we, we actually lose sight of ours. And so this is kind of a progression that we see in David's life where he got to the place where he could commit one thing after another, offenses towards God and other people, and brought him to the place where God allowed Nathan to confront him and, and just really bring him to a point by his spirit of Um, just repentance and confession. So that's where we find David as Psalm 51 is written, and that is the context. I will read just that simple verse in 2 Samuel 12, 14. After he was confronted, he simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. And so Psalm 51 is the outpouring of his heart now that he has come to a point of repentance and brokenness. And we have here, in the context of of the idea of biblical lament, generally a lament is just a, a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. So that's kind of a general definition of it. But when we talk about a biblical lament, 
we are talking about a prayer in pain that leads to trust. And I think that fits this psalm very well. It has the usual pattern of lament. Remember, we've been talking about these four things. There's typically an address to God. There's a complaint to God, a request for some sort of action on God, from God, and then an expression of trust. And so let's look at Psalm 51 as we begin here this morning and just kind of follow this idea of biblical lament. If you would look at verse 1, I will begin reading there. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. So we have here um, a prayer from David in this moment of confrontation in response to it, of repentance and faith in God. And it really is helpful for us to understand how God wants us to approach him on behalf of when we experience the same sinfulness that we were brought into this world with and we experience it day in and day out. And so it served for us an example. Remember I told you last week, if you happen to be here, that this was written for the choir, right? So a lot of times this psalm is, is looked at as just an individual thing, but it's meant actually corporately for it to be an example for all of us to be able to regularly seek the Lord on behalf of our hearts with full honesty and with transparency before our God. So as we take the process of lament, we're just going to work through. So first of all, we have the address to God. And I would suggest this, number one, his perspective is God-centered. As you look at this prayer, and by the way, some of you have expressed and, and explained to me that you're actually implementing lament in your prayer time, and it's been very helpful for you. And so that's why I'm, I'm continuing to rehearse the four ways that we lament, the four aspects of it, because I know that some of you are really trying, and there's a group of ladies that were here praying over the weekend with a, with a retreat, kind of a prayer focus, and, and what I was told was that they were spending time lamenting for themselves and for our church, and so I, I'm so thankful for how God's Word is instructing us along these lines. But when we think of David's address to God as the first aspect of lament, I want us to understand that, that his prayer is very God-centered. That's one of our core values around here. We believe that God should be in the center of everything from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. We see that, that it, it's always about God and his glory. It always has been. As in the beginning, God as the creator and all the way end when he finishes the story. It's always about God. He is in the center. Jesus lived the example of a God-centered life. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. So Jesus, God himself, came, took the form of man, and he exampled for us what it means to live a God-centered life. And so as one of our core values, we have adopted long ago that God must be in the center of everything we do. He is our motivation, his glory is our motivation, and our measurement for success. 
And in our own lives, we must live that out individually as well, not just corporately as a church. God needs to be in the center. So even in the repentance of David, he here is modeling a God-centered perspective. Verse 1 says, Be gracious to me, O God. That's how he addresses God. God, you are one of grace, and it's according to your loving kindness that I come. According to your great compassion. And then he continues to go on in his prayer. But verse 4 says, against you and you only, I have sinned. Now, did David believe that he didn't sin against other people? No. Did he sin against multiple people? Bathsheba, his children, the kingdom? Absolutely. But his, his fundamental offense is before a holy God. He knows ultimately that's the problem. He has sinned against God. He is God-centered in his repentance. If you were to take, as I did this week, if you were to take Psalm 51 and just underline all of the references to God or the second-person pronoun, like you or your. In fact, I did that, and in almost every verse, maybe three of them, did not have a specific reference to God. But throughout this whole prayer, David is God-centered. It's your loving kindness, your compassion. Verse 4, you and you only have I done evil in your sight. You are blameless when you judge. Verse 6, behold, you desire truth. At the end there, verse 6, you will make make me known wisdom. Um, there's in verse 8 you have broke uh, let the bones which you have broken rejoice hide your face from my sins verse 10 create in me a clean heart o god in verse 11 your holy spirit don't take from me verse 12 restore the joy of your salvation in verse 13, uh, converted, sinners converted to you. 14, deliver from my guiltiness, blood guiltiness, O God. Verse 15, O Lord. 16, for you uh, as well, you are not pleased with burnt offerings. 17, you will not despise. 18, by your favor. 19, then you will delight. And at the end there, your altar. And I say that verse after verse after verse just to reiterate the God-centered perspective that David is coming to in this prayer. And I realize in some of the laments, there has been a very self-focus, which in the prayer, the, the psalmist ends up going to trust God. But I think it's crucial here when we talk about repentance that we understand, like, we are nothing. God is everything. It's about God and his glory. Our offense is against him. And we really don't matter. And throughout this psalm, I think David does help us in our prayers in regards to our sin. The focus is, is on God and God alone. God, you're a God of mercy. It's, it's your loving kindness. And it's only by your compassion that I even approach you. God is at the center of his thoughts. With repentance comes a new perspective about God. And David is running to the one who matters most. So when we come to this place in our lives, when we see 
the, the reality of our hearts, we see our sinfulness so clear, we, we run to the one who we've offended. Now, sometimes our logic and the voices, maybe even those around us, would say run away from God. But the focus in this series has tried to push the discouraged, the depressed one to God. Keep running to him again, again, and again. That's what we must do. David believes that God is the center of his life and he is the one that he must go to uh, for this prayer of repentance. I would suggest number two, and, and this is kind of the complaint section, um, but I would put it maybe, say, the confession side of it. And, and some say, well, you're kind of stretching there. I, I don't think so because he's basically complaining about himself, right? He's, he's acknowledging his sin. He's confessing his sin before the Lord, and his confession is guilt-focused. He is, is squarely looking at his own problem. He's not justifying his circumstances by his circumstances. He's not looking at other people's sin or blaming it on his parents or those around him. He clearly believes this is his problem and his problem alone. And we have here in verse 1, 2, and 3, three different terms for the idea of sin. He says there, um, blot out, in verse 1, blot out my transgressions. In verse 2, he uses the word iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So there's three different words there that can be used. David uses all of them. He uses all the terms in every way he knows how to say it. He says, I am the problem. The guilt is on me. I am confessing to the Lord. That's what he said. I have sinned against the, against the Lord. What occupies his prayer is, is the guilt, not the consequences. He will be under the consequences for the rest of his entire life. He will be under the hand of God's good discipline. But that doesn't show up one time in this prayer. He never once in this prayer asks the Lord to take away the consequences or he, he never really says in any way or even hints to the idea that consequences aren't fair. He can accept the consequences because he knows he's the guilty one. His guilt is the focus. We talked a little bit last week. His child did end up dying. Another son ended up rebelling and, as was prophesied, took what belonged to David and, in public, took what was his and usurped his authority and took it for himself. He didn't end up getting to build the temple. The consequences were heavy, but David makes no mention of them. Throughout this entire psalm, it's about his mistakes, about his sin. His complaint is over his own sin. He's not complaining about the consequences of it. He's not worried about the circumstances. He says, against you and you only have I sinned so that you are justified when you speak. 
He knows it. He knows it well. He says, you are blameless when you judge God. His confession is focused on the guilt of it. The discipline that is there is because of his own failings. Verse 5, if you look there, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in, in sin did my mother conceive me. And just for clarification purposes, so you can understand here, he's not saying that there was a problem within the relationship of his parents. And so when, when he was conceived, there was a sinful activity happening at that point. That's not what he's saying. He's referring to the fact that because he is human, because he has been born of woman... He has a sin problem. And this is one of the most classic texts that we go to to understand the idea of total depravity. We understand that in sin, according to the psalmist's own words, he was conceived from the very, very beginning. There was nothing good in him. That was his position coming into this world. And we all came in in that perspective. Scripture tells us that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead means dead. And so we we come into this world sinful. Romans tells us by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men. That's who we are as humans. We are sinful people separated from God because of our sin. So David anchors his current problem in the bigger problem that he's always had. He's always been a sinner. He's always needed something outside of himself to be able to stand. In this moment of of failing, he cannot stand on his own. He's running to God. He's focused on his own guilt. He knows that God is the only answer. That's the only way that he he can survive is by the mercy and grace of God. And that has always been the case. This is not a new problem for him. And so we we have original sin that we inherit from our parents. And and so we have no excuse before a holy God. You know, sometimes you spend time talking with people about their struggles and their issues. and, and, And we can be guilty of the very same thing where we like to find ways to justify Maybe from family issues, maybe from circumstantial issues, things that have happened. And and we can tend to go easy on our hearts and our own sin because of things that are outside of us. And what I want to make sure you understand here, David sets the example of not going outside of ourselves to justify anything. We, We look inside and When we look inside, we see our problem that has always been there. We are sinners. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's why we need the gospel. That's why we need a savior. God provided the one through his own son who would be able to take care of our sin problem. And if we will look to Jesus, call on the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. Saved from what? Your sin and the penalty of sin. 
And so if you're here this morning and you have experienced the grace of God, you have called on the name of the Lord and you have been saved, yes, you are forgiven from your sin. But until we see Jesus face to face, we still have the remnants of our old man and we will still struggle to live up to that perfect standard of holiness. We're supposed to live up to it. Scripture's very clear. God says, be holy for I am holy. That's where we're supposed to go. One day we will be there. So we have a goal. We have God's will that is revealed for us. But we still have our flesh that loves to fall back into, as the scripture says, the ways of our old life according to the Gentiles, which simply means according to our flesh, the way that we lived before Jesus. And sometimes that's a very internal struggle. As we talked about last week, they could be just the thoughts of our mind, not necessarily even play out, letting them play out in our lives like David did, but according to Jesus, they're the very same. They're all an assault against the holiness of God, and we fall short of his glory in these ways. And so we are all guilty. So when we go to the Lord, we don't go to the Lord with any kind of excuses before him. We don't go except with a heart that says, God, I am the problem. The problem in my life is me. My own sin, my own selfishness, my own pride, my own lust, whatever it is. God, it is squarely on my shoulders and I am the guilty one. So his, his, his address to God, it was God-centered, his perspective, and his confession was guilt-focused. And I would say the third aspect of the lament that we see here is just his requests. And, and so his appeal here is for purification. He wants to be clean. Verse 1, blot out, he says, blot out my transgressions. It's an accounting term. It, it really means to erase from a ledger. Those of you who are numbers people in here and you work with that, that every day and, and you get the concept. David wants this sin erased from his life. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly. I've had opportunity to travel to a number of third world countries. I, maybe you have as well or and you can even picture it in your mind or maybe even from a movie. But when you travel to places like Africa and, and other Uh, third world places, you see how um, people do laundry in those types of situations. And as you're driving down the roads in most communities, if you see water at any point, you typically see people along the, the edge of the water doing their laundry and you see them basically, you know, trying to scrub it out sometimes with soap, sometimes not. And then there's this process of kind of smacking the, uh, the, the clothing on a rock or something to just make sure that you try to get the, the, the stains out. And, and there's this very intense washing. It means to wash me completely, get the stain out of the garment. That's David's idea here. He says, cleanse me from my sin. It's like the purification of a disease. David wants to be pure. Verse 6, he says, you desire truth in the innermost part. So when we are before the face of God, and that's the, the one who sees all of our sin, 
in the innermost parts of all of our thinking, all of our criticism, all of our judgmental ideas, all of our lusts, all of our selfishness, all of our pride, God sees it all. David says, you want truth in those parts. In the hidden parts, you want me to know wisdom. Verse 7, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. This idea of hyssop was a branch that was used in ceremonial cleansing, sometimes with water and sometimes with blood. And, and, and some would say that, that David is referring to the need of blood atonement here because the hyssop was used to be dipped in blood and then spattered on the sacrifice or on the altar. So David is bringing that analogy into this, this prayer. Purify me from a, from a ceremonial, from a, from a blood cleansing perspective. And I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins. And again, he says, blot out my iniquities. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit. Verse 11, do not cast me away from your presence. He wants to be with the one he has offended. His appeal is for purification so that he can be close to his God. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So when we draw nigh to God, we draw nigh wanting cleansing and purification so that that we can fellowship with him. Our position in Christ, we are anchored, we are sound in his love. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. We are secure in him forever. What he started, what he began, he will complete. We don't have to live in fear because of our sin. But we have here in this text and multiple texts in Scripture that that we go to God, the same God, with a heart of confession and repentance on a regular basis, wanting to have the fellowship with God that he desires with us. But if there is sin in our lives, that fellowship is hindered. God's Spirit is hindered in our lives. And so we take David's example and we appeal for purification. He does not want pity. (laughs) He wants pardon. As hard as it is, circumstantially, for David to to deal with the consequences, that's not his focus. He just wants to be near his God. Verse 8, make me know joy and gladness. That's the verse that we've kind of been focusing on on our slide over the last couple weeks. God, your purification will bring my joy back. As you do this work of cleansing in my heart, the joy, I I may not be happy, but I can have joy in this circumstance. Bring my joy back. Bring the gladness back. Verse 12, restore the joy of, of my salvation. Verse 17, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. That is the heart that God desires for all of his children to come to him on a regular basis. Not just when we've committed the real bad sins, but moment by moment, day by day, seeking to walk with our God in an individual context or as a corporate body. We come acknowledging God, getting our perspective 
the way it should be, that he is in the center of everything. It is only his will that matters. And then we, when we fall short, we confess it. And we confess it from a very honest perspective. God, it's my fault. And then we run to him for purification. God, I'm coming to you because you're the only place I can find mercy and grace. You're the only place that I can stand. As a freshman in college, I ended up at this tiny Bible college in the north woods of Wisconsin. I was headed to Purdue to go to pharmacy school. And, and I ended up at this Bible college and um, just God's plan for my life. And, and I began to, well, I came to know Christ there my freshman year. And then God began to work in my life there. But the leadership of the school had a constant focus on brokenness. You know, as it says in verse 17, a broken and contrite heart, that's what God desires. And I don't know if this is Les Olas' original definition or if it came from Life Action and Del Faisenfeld. I, I don't know exactly, but this is what was drilled into us as students at Northland. God desires brokenness. And this was the definition that was repeated all the time in chapel to us. It's the shattering of our will so that every action and reaction is controlled by the Spirit of God. So at 18 and then 19 and 20, year after year, sitting under just chapel message after chapel message with the same heartbeat and the same perspective. Those of us who were there during those years, and some are even here who were part of that, God did so many unique things in our lives during that time. Because the focus was not on the outside. It had nothing to do with our exterior. And it had nothing to do with our circumstances. The constant message was, your heart is in need of repair. Go low. Be broken before God. Let God shatter your will so that every part of your life comes into submission under him. Now, if, if we take this definition of brokenness, every action, every reaction, and we apply it to this example of prayer, then it should strip away any notions that we have of like, oh, that's, that's a prayer for like really bad sinners. That was for when David was at his lowest. I've been there one time and I went to this psalm and I prayed this. No, actually, it's an ongoing prayer of God's child to want to walk in fellowship and purity with their God. Brokenness, letting God shatter our wills. And in this context, God needed to bring Nathan to do that. He doesn't do that in every context. Most of the time, it's just the Spirit of God that brings us to that place of like, I'm guilty, I've sinned. And we run to him for help, and we run to him for grace and mercy. I would suggest number four. For David, his belief is in God's forgiveness. And it's so crucial that we end here 
because David actually believed that God forgives sins. He believed with all of his heart. Psalm 32, it's kind of the companion psalm. Lord willing, we're going to go through that next Sunday because it, it talks about how blessed is the one who is forgiven and it gives us that theological perspective and kind of foundation for everything that I'm talking about here. But in, in verse 5, he says, And you forgave the guilt of my sin. So David believed in his heart that if he would come to God, right person to go to, and if he were to confess his own sinfulness, not blaming others, not looking to his circumstances, but Squarely on his shoulders, it's my fault. And, and if he would appeal for purification, that God would follow through on his word and he actually would do it. God is a forgiving God. And David believes it. God is gracious. And I just want to ask you, do you know God to be forgiving in your life? Do you believe it? There's been even some here this week who have made really, really bad choices. And you're struggling in your heart. Like, you know, like, intellectually that God forgives you, but, but you're, you're not to the point where you're feeling it yet. Can I suggest that those two must come together? That if we know he forgives us, then we can feel it. Because there is not one of us who can stand apart from Jesus Christ. It's always on Jesus and his finished work on the cross that we have any hope before a holy God. David believes in the forgiveness of God. He came with a broken and contrite heart, but he believes that when he comes, that he will receive mercy. One writer said this, In Christ you are rinsed clean, invincibly, permanently, and irreversibly. Let that be the balm for your soul today, O sinner. In Christ, we are rinsed clean. Invincibly, you cannot stop it. Permanently, you can't change it. And irreversibly, it's never going to go back. That gives us hope. In the midst of our mess, it gives us hope. And Dave also believed that he was not going to, like, it wasn't the end of his story. Look at verse 13. In the midst of all this, in his confession, in his belief that God is going to forgive him, he says this, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. David firmly believes that God is not done with him. And that was true. We don't ever get to a point where God can't use us anymore, where we're just washed up and it's over for us. No matter how much we, we, we sin and we fall short of the glory of God, if our hearts are humble and contrite before him, we run to him for cleansing and purification, and what he gives us in return is forgiveness and a clean heart And he chooses to use us in spite of us. 
that should be very encouraging to all of us as sinners today. If we're honest with ourselves and we can get to a place where we're actually broken and contrite before God, like we really see our hearts before a holy God today as God sees it, that's the idea of confession. Say the same thing about my heart that God says. If we really get there, and then we choose to believe the truth that God has revealed about himself, that he is a forgiving God, and if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Then he gives us opportunity again to love him and serve him. David says, after you cleanse me and wash me, he says, then I will teach some may think, well, he has no right. He has no right to stand and teach how sinners should be converted after all he did. It's a good thing God doesn't have our hearts. It's a good thing God isn't as judgmental as we are. There would be very few people standing. In fact, if all the truth be told, there wouldn't be anyone standing. But David believes God. That God gives people second chances and third chances, multiple chances, a lifetime of forgiveness. He believes the promises of God for his own life. And then verse 18, he says, and and let your favor be good to Zion and build the temple. He confidently goes to God after he has asked for his guilt to be removed and the cleansing to happen. He says, be good to your people. Restore your presence in Jerusalem. As we think about this pattern of prayer, can I just challenge all of us that this should be a regular occurrence in our lives. Not just when we feel like we've committed the real bad sins, but this prayer of lament that includes the address to God, it includes the the complaint or the confession about one's own self, a request for cleansing, forgiveness, and purification, and then an expression of trust. David believes in the promises of God. He believes that God will forgive him, God is going to use him, and God will once again work in his people's lives. And so, we look at this with an honest heart, saying we have been every bit... uh, infected with sin as David was. And we commit all the same ones, if not in thought, but in deed. And every sin is an assault against the glory of God. Every selfish thought, every form of pride, every thing we covet, it's all an assault. But we look to our Savior Because Jesus carries the weight of our sin. So he took care of our pride, our selfishness, our covetousness, 
our lust. Jesus carries our sin. And in his finished work, we find hope and forgiveness. And so wherever you think you're at, in regards to your own heart and sin that you are involved in, can I ask you to compare yourself to not one other person that you see around you or you're thinking about? But compare yourself completely with the holiness of God. In him is light. There is no darkness at all. That's the standard. We fall short, and so we constantly ask him, based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, we ask him to cleanse us and purify us. God, make us holy And as you do, make us know the joy that is found in you in knowing that we are forgiven. Even if the circumstances never change, if the consequences never go away, the joy of our salvation can always be present. Always. No matter what. But I think God wants a heart of brokenness. Steady life of repentance and brokenness for his holiness. Would you bow with me as we close this morning? I'm going to let just the Spirit of God work however his purposes are this morning. But if you find yourselves spiritually discouraged and maybe even in a form of depression, and you've been able to identify even in the last few days since last Sunday, maybe it's my own fault. This is the pathway to joy. This is the the pathway to believing and trusting in God once again and finding joy in him. But maybe you're not in that emotional place. This psalm stands on its own as an example for every child of God to follow and to live. God desires a broken and contrite heart. So would you just take a moment and respond to the Spirit? Let Him reveal areas that perhaps you haven't even thought of in a while. Or maybe you're you're really clear on them and you just need to say, it's me, God. I've sinned. Please forgive me. Be gracious to us, O God. Purge us, cleanse us, wash us. We are guilty. We've been guilty from the beginning. We need a Savior, Jesus. You are the Savior. We look to you for pardon and cleansing and purification. We rest in your finished work. And we find joy in you once again. And we express to you our trust that your forgiveness is so real and so powerful that you can even use us in spite of ourselves and in spite of our sin. That you encourage us to use our gifts to serve you even though we find ourselves so full of 
selfishness and pride and sin. God, thank you that we stand solely on you. As we go from this place, would you keep us humble, keep us contrite, keep us broken before you so that every action and reaction will be under your spirit's control. God, we can't do that in and of ourselves. It's only the work of your grace in our lives. So we ask for it, and we trust that you'll give it. In your holy and precious name I pray, amen.